Amen. I hope you know a little bit of the history of that song. Uh, John Newton was a British slave, uh, slave ship captain, probably the best way to put that, and a, a wicked man. And he would basically tell you, if he were here today, I gave Paul a run for his money with regard to being the chief of sinners. So that's what John Newton would say. Uh, he was a wicked, carnal man who loved himself, loved money, loved to sin, and then was astonished when God saved him and went about going about the rest of his life seeking to tell people of God's amazing grace as a pastor. And uh, if you ever need letters to read as a way of informing letters you could write to other people, the letters of John Newton are collected in various sources, and they are beautiful statements of God's faithfulness and God's tenderness toward people. And so he wrote that song, I believe, on New Year's Day of, say, 1750, 1780, somewhere, I can't remember the exact, uh, it may have been 18-something. <laughs> Anybody know exactly when it would have been? It was on a New Year's Day in the 1700s or 1800s. They're very specific. But all that to say, he wrote it so that his congregation would be able to rejoice in how God had faithfully led them through the past year. It was an expectation that he would lead them faithfully in the next year as well. So he wrote that just for his own local congregation, probably a couple hundred relatively poor people in his congregation in London, and just wanted to encourage his people that God had been gracious to them. And he certainly has been to us as well. And one of the ways he's been gracious to us is by giving us his word. So I'd encourage you to take your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. If you're new to the Bible, Ecclesiastes is right in the middle, essentially, after the Psalms and Proverbs. And so you can look there. And we're reading the fifth chapter. Last week, Israel preached the first seven verses of chapter 5. We'll finish chapter 5 today. And then preach chapter 6 next week and continue through this, this book that uh, describes real life. I think maybe that's one of the, the impressions that I get as I read through Ecclesiastes again and again. Is he's simply describing what it's like to live in a hard world where things go wrong, where people do wrong to other people but he's writing it from a theological perspective as well, telling us something very important about God and about how we should live our lives in this fallen world. So please uh, follow along in your Bible as I read aloud Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 8 through the end of the chapter. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. 
Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. But he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. About 15 years ago, a church in another state, a relatively large church with lots of auxiliary ministries underneath the church's uh, heading, we could say, decided to do an audit and to have an external um, accountant come in and check up on how the church was doing financially. They had done audits for years, but they had had the guy who was in charge of the money doing the audit. Michael, is that good business practice? Okay, so he was a business manager at a school. That's not a good practice. You want to know how much money you have? You don't have the guy who's in charge of the money check the money. Okay, so that's just a basic principle. That was free, but it's just important. Um, so they, they had an external accountant come in and start looking through the books. And things were not adding up. And what they realized was that for several years, this man had been embezzling money, writing checks from one account to his own business account, cashing those checks and going on his way. And by the time they caught him, he had embezzled $1.2 million from the church to himself. The man, obvi man obviously spent time in prison and now is continuing for the rest of his life and about 400 years after that, sending $100 back to this church every single month as part of his repayment. He would have to live lifetime after lifetime after lifetime to repay what he has stolen. There are lots of questions about that, but one of the more obvious is why was he doing that? Why was he stealing money from his employer, which happened to be a Baptist church? And again, while there are lots of answers to even that question, probably the most fundamental one, the one that Ecclesiastes would tell us and that the rest of the Bible would tell us is that this man loved money. And what this passage persuasively and repeatedly tells us is that the love of money will never satisfy. And so this passage urges you to refuse to believe that money will satisfy and instead rejoice in God's common gifts to you. Instead of longing for more and fighting for more all the days of your life, take contentment in what God has given. He is a generous God. We've just sung about it over and over again. The passages we've read have said it. That passage that Eddie read says that he has generously given us all things to richly enjoy. And you get that from even Psalm 23, that he's your shepherd who takes you to green pastures and besides still waters. He is a generous God. So take what he's given you with a heart of gratitude rather than clamoring and grasping for more. The author of Ecclesiastes wrote this to urge his readers to resist the love of money and the belief that it will somehow satisfy you when you get it. And he clearly tells you it will not. Verses 8 through 17, really the heart of this passage, or at least the lengthiest part of this passage, makes one statement 
He does it in a lot of ways. The, the passage does it in a lot of different ways. But the statement is that loving money will never satisfy. That's what verse 8 through verse 17 tells us. And in the first couple of verses here, verses 8 through 9, what he does is creates a bit of a hypothetical situation, but not one that's hard for us to envision. Because perhaps you've even experienced it in one way or another, on one end or the other of this. He says, if you see in a province, you're walking through the land and you see somebody being oppressed, he's a poor man, a poor worker out in the field being oppressed, and you see the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be shocked. That's what verse 8 tells you. Why would you be shocked to see that wicked people do wicked things? That people who have power and money use that to oppress other people. You wouldn't be shocked because that's been the story of humanity from beginning till the present, and it continues on to this day. He says, don't be amazed at the matter. And he gives the reason you shouldn't be shocked. And here's, let me, I'll just, I'll just summarize what he says, and then we'll look at it again. The reason you shouldn't be shocked is because the person doing the oppressing out in that field is not the only one who's oppressing. The person above that guy is doing it to him, and the guy above that guy is doing it to him. And the point of verse 9 is that even the king is responsible for the way that the trickle-down effect of oppressing people is now affecting the people who are out in the field picking the corn or plucking the wheat or any other resource out there. So don't be shocked that wealthy people treat others unjustly. The love of money trickles down from one authority to another. Verse 9 in the, the New International Version reads this way. The increase from the land is taken by all, which is the idea that one, re one authority gets some, gets a, a piece of the pie, so to speak, and the authority above him gets a piece of the pie, and the king himself profits from the field. So the reason that there's oppression on the most base level is because there's oppression on the highest level, that the person at the very top of the food chain gets his piece and then passes it down to the next. And so he says, loving money will never satisfy. And one of the reasons that you have seen this to bear fruit, so to speak, is that this is a human condition, that people who love money do what they can to take money from all those they possibly can. So don't be shocked that wealthy people treat others unjustly. But you do see a grievous-heart condition here, don't you? Aren't the people who are at the top of the food chain the ones responsible for blessing the people further down? Isn't that their job to serve other people instead of taking from other people? And this reminds us of one of the reasons Jesus died on the cross. It took the righteous Son of God who lived the perfect life and never oppressed anyone and never took from anyone to die for the greed that exposes itself in our hearts and in the hearts of those described in this passage here. Have you ever taken something from someone because you had the power to do it? That is a sin. And that is what Jesus died for. And that's why all of us can give thanks because that seed desire of wanting to benefit off of someone else resides in all of our hearts in one shape or another. So don't be shocked that wealthy people treat others unjustly. In verses 10 through 12, don't be deceived into thinking that money will satisfy. We go straight at the problem here. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. This is not hard for us to see when you read books by people who have had it all 
and say, I enjoyed what I had, but I would trade it all for more. That's what a wealthy person would say. I like it, but I'd take it, I would trade it all for more. The person who loves money, the person who loves uh, wealth will not be satisfied with either money or wealth. He says, this also is vanity. Why is this vanity? What does he mean by saying that this idea that money will not satisfy is vanity? He means that it's an enigma. You would think, in other words, that what you have would satisfy you. That when you had seven figures in your bank account, you'd be okay with that. No, I want eight. And I'll be happy when I get eight. When you get eight, you say, no, I need nine. And it goes on and on. Solomon says, this is a mystery. This is an enigma. And it's going to pass away. Money itself will pass away. But even this idea that money doesn't satisfy is a mystery, is an enigma. Don't be deceived into thinking money will satisfy. Verse 11 tells you why it won't satisfy. And it's because when you have a lot of money, there are a lot of people around you who want your money. And he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. All right, so let's say you have a guy who has a million bucks. Well, this means that he also needs somebody to take care of his humongous house. And he needs somebody to cut his grass. And he needs somebody to cut his trees. And somebody to watch his children. And somebody to manage his rental property. And somebody to keep the books. And somebody to book his flight reservations. And on and on. And they all need their piece of the pie. So that guy keeps trying to get more. Well, eventually, then you have more and more people asking for your money from from donations and, and uh, for various social causes. Can't you give a little bit of money for this one over here and that one over there? And so he says, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. That's why it's never going to satisfy because it's always going to be disappearing before your own eyes. That's one of the reasons. He says, what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? It's kind of like when you look at your bank account and it just keeps getting smaller and smaller as you watch it online because one more withdrawal, and there goes another, and there goes another, and it's just disappearing before your very eyes. Ironically, the person who is satisfied is probably that guy who's out in the field being oppressed. Because what does he have to worry about? He got a bite to eat today, and now he gets to go to bed. He doesn't have to worry anymore. So verse 12 says, sweet is the sleep of a laborer. And he's probably talking about that guy in verse 8, the person who's being oppressed out in the field. Whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. And I don't think that's just talking about the fact that the fact that you know a fatty piece of meat keeps you awake at night. I think he's talking about the fact that when you have a lot, it's kind of a metaphor, when you have a lot, you're more stressed because you have to take care of a lot. Solomon would say, it's a whole lot more satisfying to not even worry about it in the first place. It's probably better to be the one out in the field being oppressed by the person who's being oppressed by the person who's being oppressed, rather than being the oppressor at the top. So don't be deceived into thinking that money will satisfy. In verses 13 through 17, don't be surprised if your riches disappear. He uses the phrase here, do this evil, three different times. The first is here in verse 13. The last one is actually in next week's passage, in the beginning of chapter 6. But here in verse 13, there is a grievous evil. And these are the only three times in the Bible that these words show up this way. A grievous evil. Not just an evil. He's talked about that a lot in Ecclesiastes. Here's something that's really bad. What is it? Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. 
a lot of money, you invest it, and it disappears. Now, I don't know about you, but the person who comes to my mind when I hear those words is Bernie Madoff. He ruined thousands of people's lives by taking all their money and saying he was investing it in hugely profitable revenue streams. And then it all blew up. You can watch 60 Minutes interviews or all kinds of other YouTube videos if you want of people saying, I have enough to get me through a couple weeks. But he took everything else with him. One of Bernie Madoff's sons committed suicide two years to the day from when he when he saw that it was exposed because he was involved and didn't even know that he was part of this Ponzi scheme. One of his other sons died slowly of cancer and never forgave his father, never talked to him again. Bernie Madoff ruined people's lives by stealing their money. And they're a bad guys. And that's what verse 13 describes. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. So he's a father of a son. He's got people to provide for, but he has nothing in his hands. That sounds horrific. That sounds like when you drive around a parking lot in your here and someone's holding up a sign saying, out of work, I have hungry children, please help. What he's describing is, I'm a father of a son and I have nothing in my hands. Verse 13, verse 14. Verse 15 probably sounds familiar to you. And what we have here is an example of the Old Testament authors reading the whole Bible as a whole and quoting from other Old Testament authors. Most conservative scholars believe that the book of Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible. And what you have here is Solomon, probably a thousand or even more years later, quoting from the book of Job. And he says, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. Job, that's Job 121. Job says, look, I came naked from my mother's womb. I'm going to die naked again. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And here Solomon is using that same idea to say, this guy who has family to take care of has nothing left to give. It's all been taken away. In the end of that verse, where it says, nothing, he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand, like there are all kinds of songs and stories about this, but what comes to my mind is the bumper sticker that says, he who dies with the most toys wins. And my response to that is, no, he who dies with the most toys is still dead. You have nothing. It didn't help you. You had a miserable life trying to take care of all that you owned and all you were striving for, and you kept grasping for more, and that's what uh, the, the passage will go on to say, that it was grasping after the wind. What an exhausting way to live so that you can die and be not satisfied. That sounds terrible. That's what Ecclesiastes is telling you. It's awful to live for money. He's not saying it's awful to have money. No one should feel guilty for having money in their bank account. He's not condemning being frugal and saving your money. And he's not commending being a workaholic, like you should just keep working more. What he's condemning is the idea that if I have money, then I'll be satisfied. And so I'm going to keep striving for it until I get enough. And that idea will ruin you, he says. 
dies with an earth's voice still dies. And this is why perhaps you would say, well, I just need to work harder. I'm justified because I worked so hard. No, the Bible tells you you are justified because Christ completed his work. He came to actively fulfill God's law. He perfectly kept all of God's commands, and he perfectly obeyed God by dying on the cross. And that's why you don't have to work to justify yourself. Yes, you should work hard. The Bible does not commend being a sluggard. Many passages condemn that. The Bible as a whole, the whole message of the Bible condemns being lazy and sluggardish. But the Bible does also condemn looking to your work as the means to being satisfied, as the means to feeling right with God. uses the phrase, verse 16, there, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? The person who's just chasing after the wind and grasps a little harder and a little harder, and he still doesn't get what he wants. Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anguish. Years ago, I read a story of a man in Germany who was found by the police after neighbors in his apartment building complained of a dent coming from his apartment. And when the police broke the door down and walked in, they found his dead body completely deteriorated. He had died, and no one knew it. No one cared. Where was his family? Where was his employer or his employees? Where were his friends? Evidently, he had none. So he could die a meaningless life, and no one would even care. That's what I picture when I read, he eats in darkness. He doesn't even have the lights on in his kitchen, because he's just eating another bowl of rice and beans. Same thing he's had day after day, and he's eating it by himself in a depressing, smelly, dark place. How does he feel about that? Sick, and he's angry. His life has not gone the way he wanted to. Loving money will never satisfy. So what do we do? What is the right response? What does it look like to live a meaningful life rather than a meaningless life? Verses 18 through 20 tell us, being content with productive work is a gift from God. Being content content with productive work is a gift from God. Verse 18 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good, as opposed to this vexation and sickness and anguish, what's good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in what? Going to the beach? Having a party? Watching a game? Playing a game? No. Find enjoyment in the toils with which one toils under the sun, that means on this earth, the few days of his life. Again, even if you live the longest life, somebody in here is going to win the award for this crowd of people living the longest life. Paul is no one's going to be there to celebrate with them. And even among that person, even if that person makes 100, even if that person makes 110, there's no one in this room that's going to make it to 140. No one lives that way. You're going to die. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us again and again. You live a few days of your life, but every day God has given to him. That's what verse 18 tells us. 
so what should you do? You should rejoice in your work. You should work hard and work productively and be grateful for the work that God has given you in the few days that God has given you. Verse 18 says, your work is from God. And maybe somebody would object, there are at least a couple objections that, that came in our mind as I studied this. One is, I don't have work. <laughs> I don't have a job. I'm retired or I'm too young to work or any other combination here. Okay, so I guess what I would say is all of us have responsibility of being productive citizens. And even if your responsibility is to go out and cut your grass or to water your flowers or to write a note to a fellow church member, take your responsibilities seriously and do those to the glory of God and find joy in those tasks. That's what it would look like to enjoy your work and to take, take joy and gratitude in all that God has given you. And the other you know, possible objection to this is, but I hate my job. And obviously in a context like this, I can't answer every possible scenario. But I know I've worked terrible jobs that you feel like, I'm just not a fit for this. I just don't you know, like anything about this company. I don't like anything about the kind of work. I don't like the conditions of the work. I don't like my boss or my coworkers. Maybe there's wisdom in finding another job if that is where you're at. But if the reason you don't like your job is, I don't have enough time to go to the beach. I don't have enough time to fly to the coast and see new sites, fly overseas. That's a foreign objection to the Bible. The Bible doesn't say, work hard for a certain number of years and then take it easy the rest of your life. Work productively. Even if you're retired. The Bible doesn't condemn being retired and realizing that your body can't do what it used to do. That's an Ecclesiastes reality. You're going to die. You're going to wear down. I'm already there in some ways myself. So that the problem isn't enjoying retirement. The problem is thinking that joy is going to come because you don't work anymore. Now you should have some responsibility, Ecclesiastes would tell you, and take joy in those responsibilities. So your work is from God. What does verse 19 say? It says your possessions are from God. God has given wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them. The money you have, the items in your house or in your car, these things are gifts from God for you to enjoy. This is part of your lot, he says. This is the gift of God. So accept your lot and rejoice in your toil. Rejoice in your work and fulfilling your responsibilities. In verse 20, so verse 18, your work is from God. Verse 19, your possessions are from God. In verse 20, your joy is from God. And you say, I need to pursue joy and finally happen, uh, final and find it, happen upon it. No. Joy comes as a gift from God. How do you get it? Well, it sounds like you don't even try to get it. Verse 20, he will not much remember the days of his life. What does that sound like? That sounds to me like the hippie statement, time flies when you're having fun. If you enjoy your work, you enjoy fulfilling your responsibilities, whatever those may be, in your family or in your community or in your yard or in your office tower building, Whatever those are, if you're grateful that God has given you these opportunities and you're serving other people and you're generous, the way God is generous, you have an open hand about what God has given you, time flies when you're working hard, when you're being productive. 
don't even think about how fast time goes by, verse 20 says, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Even the experience of feeling satisfied is a gift from God. So rather than believing that money will satisfy, rejoice in the ordinary gifts that God has given you. One verse that comes to my mind is when Jesus says to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And I think during the pandemic, we probably all came across people who felt like it was their job to prepare the world were actually going to screech to a halt, and you were going to have to fend for yourself no matter what. And this happened certainly, perhaps on an even more uh, robust scale for Y2K, that horrific event. Whether it was from 1999 to 2000, some of you weren't even alive for it, I realize, but... but um, People, you know, went and built bunkers so they could have everything they would ever need till the day they died. Resist the belief that money will satisfy, that you can have enough. And instead, rejoice in God's good gift to you, asking him to give us our daily bread. This passage reminds us that work is not the result of the curse. Adam was designed to work hard. Part of the curse that factors in is that work now becomes sweaty and thorn-infested and difficult and full of contention. But this passage would tell you that even pushing carts in Costco's parking lot is a viable job, and you should be satisfied with that job. Baking bread, even though you're just going to sell it for 50 cents so you can make another loaf, is a viable job because it serves other people working on an assembly line or cleaning bathrooms or raising children. None of these are glamorous jobs, but all of them are valuable and productive because you can glorify God in doing them by serving God's people. And so what makes a job meaningful is not that you have an extraordinarily large bank account after you've worked there for a while. It's not that you're getting publicity for your job for what you're accomplishing, but it's that you're investing in people who are made in the image of God, even if you're on one side of a wall and the people receiving your labor is on the other side, like in a factory of some kind. If you're responsible, I think this passage, if you're responsible for other people, in other words, people report to you, I think this passage would urge you to not be the kind of person who oppresses just because you're being oppressed from above. And so this passage would urge you as a Christian employer and as a Christian employee to be the kind of person who happily goes about your day, happily fulfilling your responsibilities, working to be a just boss and a just employee, even if you're working in a culture of injustice. Of course, the greatest gift that God has given us, he's given us to work, to enjoy, he's given us family, the greatest gift God has given us is the gift of salvation. And so when you think about what God has most generously given us, we sang earlier, what more could he say? I want to also ask, what more could he give than his own son to wash away your sins so that you can enjoy the forgiveness of sins? A clear conscience before him. This is truly the greatest gift. It's possible to have everything you wanted and then die and at the moment of your death you realize I had nothing 
it's also possible to go through life as someone united to Christ with basically nothing, no possessions, no great job, no fame. A hundred years from now, no one's going to remember your name. But because you're united to Christ, you realize, I have everything. This is the life that Ecclesiastes urges you to pursue. Perhaps you've heard the story of Martin Luther during the Reformation meeting a man who had just become a Christian and he's being persuaded by the truth of the gospel that Martin Luther and others like him were preaching. And he said to him, now that I'm a Christian, what should I do with my life? Expecting Martin Luther to say, well, you should go into ministry or you should be a monk or you should be a missionary or something like these, you know, really high, have a spiritual perspective to them, kind of a high calling before God. And Martin Luther said, well, what do you do? What, what kind of job do you have now? He said, well, I, I make shoes. I'm a, I'm a cobbler. And Martin Luther replied to him, then make great shoes. Make the best shoes. And then sell them at a fair price. And do it all to the glory of God. And what Solomon would say here is, whatever you do, make it the best. And do it for God's glory. Sell it at a fair price and enjoy doing it. Maybe we could say the summary of Ecclesiastes is live the Christian life, preach the gospel, enjoy doing it, and then die content in what God has given you. It's not a sad message. That's a realistic message. And it's one that realizes that this life is not all there is. The reason a non-Christian cannot enjoy this kind of a message is because they would be grasping for more, thinking this life is it. I've got to make it happen now or it's never going to happen. But the promises of the new creation are glorious, Christian. Enjoy what God has given, realizing that the best gifts are yet to come. The freedom from sin, enjoying life like it's in the Garden of Eden, but even better, is yet to come. And this is possible because we are in Christ. We're united to him. And he has given us satisfying work to do for him, no matter where you work or what kind of work it is. Let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us as Christians great joy 